Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 8 in your Bible. Acts chapter 8. I'm going to begin reading in verse 4 and down through verse 13. The scripture says, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. May the Lord instruct us today through this passage, encourage us in the power of the gospel. In his commentary on this passage, John Calvin writes, The voice of the gospel which was being heard only in one place is now resounding everywhere. At the same time, we are warned by this example that we must not give in to persecutions, but that rather we must discipline ourselves to bravery. For when the faithful flee from Jerusalem, they are not broken by exile and the distresses of the moment or by any fear of the future so that they degenerate into cowardice or inactivity but they are just as keen to proclaim Christ as if they had never gone through any trouble. Therefore, if we wish to be counted as brothers of these people, let us eagerly urge ourselves on so that no bitterness of the cross or fear may discourage us from continuing to make open confession of our faith and so that we may never grow weary of promoting the teaching of Christ. And then he says, for it's absurd that exile and flights should make us dumb and lifeless. You realize what happens early in this chapter, and of course through the last chapter in the death of Stephen, that there are those who certainly could have taken it as an opportunity to just stop and cease their proclamation of the gospel because of the danger that it posed to their lives. But the very opposite took place when in verse 4 it says, Therefore those who had been scattered about uh, went about preaching the word. The very same gospel that Stephen was preaching, now Philip is preaching, a fellow deacon also given verbal gifts, and apparently as we see in the chapter here, miraculous gifts. And Philip goes, one of the scattered, and he goes to the city of Samaria and begins proclaiming Christ to them. The gospel is going forward. It had been in Jerusalem. The apostles are still there. Remember back in verse 1, it says at the end that they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And Philip, being one of the scattered, goes to Samaria, this place and region, we could say, which was so despised by the Jews that they might even take pains to avoid it altogether, to avoid walking through it. When you look at Samaria in the Scripture, we oftentimes encounter in the Gospels comments about the Samaritans. Of course, Jesus evangelized the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. Where do these people come from? Who are they? 
What's their background? Why is this significant? Why did Jesus specifically say Samaria? Well, in terms of a region, it was very close. It was actually between Jerusalem and Galilee. But as far as the origin of the Samaritans, it would really depend on who you asked as to where they came from. If you asked a Samaritan during this time, they may have said to you that Israel as a nation diverged from the right path when Eli, uh, Eli the priest, built a tabernacle at Shiloh. They believed eventually that the tabernacle belonged at Mount Gerizim and not Jerusalem, so they rejected certainly the prophets and the direction that Israel took following that time. They would say that Ezra repeated the mistake when the temple was again rebuilt after being destroyed at Jerusalem, and so there was a rejection of Israel's path, and there was really a setting of their own path. And this is part of the reason that in the Gospels, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, that becomes a topic of debate where she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So they had an alternate temple. But the, the, the Jews, on the other hand, trace the Samaritans back to a time in Israel's history when the Assyrians sent people from other nations back into this area. And if you would just turn to 2 Kings chapter 17, just want to note this. 2 Kings chapter 17. The heading starting in verse 24 and my Bible says, cities of Israel filled with strangers. But let's just take one verse back, verse 23, verse 22, we'll take two. The sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel from his sight, as he spoke through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. So that's until the day of the writing of Kings. Verse 24, the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sepharvaim and settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. At the beginning of their living there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Okay, so what's going on? You have these people from other nations being sent into the promised land, and they don't fear the Lord, and the Lord is actually bringing lions to attack and kill some of them. So what is the king of Assyria told to do? Verse 26, so they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you've carried away into exile in the cities of Samaria do not know the custom of the God of the land, so he has sent lions among them, and behold, they kill them because they do not know the custom of the God of the land. And the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Take there one of the priests whom you carried into away into exile, and let him go and live there, and let him teach the custom of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel, and taught them how they should fear the Lord. And so what you have is an Israelite priest coming back into the land, teaching the people how to fear. And notice that word in verse 28. The end, of the end of the verse is, Lord, all caps, it's Yahweh. Verse 29, But every nation still made gods of its own, and put them in the houses of the high places, which the people of Samaria had made, every nation in this, their cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Succoth, Benoth, the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibahaz and Tartak, and the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. And this is an amazing verse. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who act for, acted for them in the houses of the high places. 
They feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations from among whom they had been carried away into exile. So who are these people? Well, they're idolaters. But now they've had a priest of Israel brought in to teach them the ways of Yahweh. But they didn't abandon their idolatry, which of course the worship of Yahweh as it's presented in Scripture, is exclusive, and every idol should be burned in the fire, cast down. But they didn't do that. And so what you have is, in the very least, a syncretism, which is a mixing of the one true religion, worship of God, Yahweh, and now the worship of all these other idols and gods. And that's what's being described there in verse 30. And following is their gods and even some of their practices of wicked practices of worship. The Samaritans would argue, well, we didn't all leave. Not every one of us left. So there were still people in the land. Even when the exile took place, there were still Israelites that were left in the land. We never really left. But because of this movement of foreigners into Samaria... The Jews actually called them Kuthites. If you look at verse 24, that first location, Kutha, they called them Kuthites. That would have been an insult. It would have been effectively calling the Samaritans foreigners. There's also one source I read that called them the lion, uh, the lion converts or converts of the lion. In other words, that's what took them to convert so to be called a Samaritan, certainly from the standpoint of Jews who thought they had this origin, was not a good thing. The Jews did not believe they were truly Jews. The Samaritans were either a mixed breed or actually Gentiles, but Gentiles who had some semblance of Jewish religion because they talked about Yahweh. And as the Jews referred to Samaritans, which as I understand it is the Greek word for Kuthite, it would be, it'd be an equivalent word anyway, they used it as an insult. So when in John 8, 48, the Jews spoke to Jesus, they said, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? That was meant to be an insult, of course. And Jesus, in his teaching and his actions, seems to acknowledge that there was a distinction between these people groups. I think that was on the surface to a certain extent, but remember when he told his disciples to go out and preach the gospel, he said, do not go to the Gentiles and do not go in the way of the Samaritans, but only to the lost sheep of Israel. So he's acknowledging that the Samaritans were a separate group and yet, because of this chapter, you can see that if this is the same group of people that's living there, or the descendants of these people living there, that they would have had some knowledge of the one true God. But certainly there were differences. One of the differences would be that they did not regard the prophets as the Jews did, but they did regard Moses to be a true prophet. In fact, they would have accepted as their scriptures the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible, the law, the Torah, as Moses taught it. They had a high esteem of Moses. But Jesus, at a certain point, tells his disciples to go just to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the point that I'm making is that this is a separate people group, at least in terms of their connection to Israel. They're worshiping in a different place. And that became some of the debate between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. But I just want to encourage us to remember that, that Jesus went and talked to the Samaritan woman. He sat down at the well, and he asked her for a drink. And that proceeded into a discussion that involved some theology, but ultimately the gospel message, which she believed. He purposed to go there. He purposed to talk to her. He loved her and wanted her to have salvation. He wanted her to have what truly would satisfy. Everlasting life. And that isn't all. If you turn over to John chapter 4, and I'm saying that isn't all because Jesus actually did spend a little bit more time there. 
John chapter 4, Jesus has had this interaction with the woman. I want you to note in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am, or I who speak to you am he. And then the disciples came. And then the woman leaves, goes back to the city. As she goes back to the city and tells the people in the city this interaction that she had with Jesus, then there's opportunity for Jesus to interact with the rest of the Samaritans. Verse 39 says, From that city many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I've done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Talk about a scandal. Not only did he talk to a Samaritan woman, but he stayed in a Samaritan city and was hosted by them and, of course, preached to them. He loved them. Verse 41, many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. And after the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. So he kept on going north into Galilee. So there was some seed sown in Sychar. That's the city where Jesus is. But Philip goes to another city. If you turn back to Acts chapter 8, he goes to Samaria, the city again where there's a region of Samaria. This is the city of Samaria. Sychar would have been another city, and there were others as well. And the gospel, through persecution, following the time of success and then persecution in Jerusalem, is now going to a new place. The gospel is spreading. This is God's purpose. It's his purpose in the book of Acts. It certainly continues to be his purpose in this world and at this time. Let's make the application. It is for us also to spread the gospel. But here is a man who was scattered due to persecution. And what did he do? He went down to the city of Samaria, verse 5, and began proclaiming Christ to them. And I don't know if you notice things like this, but when I go north, I don't think of going down. But if you're at Jerusalem and you go to Samaria, you are going down. And so you're going from the mountain down. And that's why Luke says it that way. The geographical focus has Jerusalem at the center, not necessarily north, south, east, and west. So he goes down. And as he goes there, the, the word began in the New American Standard is supplied. Because the idea of proclaiming here is a continual thing. It's a verb that indicates that he didn't just do it once, but he started doing it, sort of like Paul going to synagogues or Jesus going about to different villages. And he's proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming specifically the focus of the gospel, the Messiah to this city, to these people. And if you remember... As we were in John chapter 4, and that woman said, I know that when the Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. Remember her saying that? So here's this woman who is immoral. She'd lived her life that way, and yet there is at least a knowledge on her part that there was a Messiah. There was a Messiah coming, a Messiah who would tell them all things. It seems that part of the understanding that a Samaritan would have had was that there would be a prophet like Moses, a teacher, who would come. They had more ideas about the Messiah than that, but that was one thing that on the surface of her mind, I know that when the Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. Well, what had he told her? Well, he had disclosed some things to her that she knew about him, herself, but she didn't think that he knew about her marriage history and so forth. But indeed he did, and that was part of the reason that she was so surprised. And then when she recognizes, based on his own testimony, that this is a man claiming to be the Messiah, she goes and tells others, this is a man who's told me everything that I've done. It's like her, her life history. 
So they did have an idea of the Messiah. They had a belief in the first five books, including the testimony of Moses. So this isn't completely new news to them that there would be a Messiah, but it would be new, at least to those outside of Sychar, that Jesus is the Messiah. Later on in the passage, as Philip is preaching in verse 12, it says, When they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, so it's Jesus the Messiah that he is preaching, this is a message that they would have heard about the Messiah, but now there's a person identified. There's someone who has come. And of course, that's who Philip is preaching as he's spreading the gospel. And praise the Lord for Philip's faithful preaching of the gospel here as he begins to proclaim and continues to proclaim. And what is the response? What was his effectiveness? Sometimes the gospel is preached and very little attention is given. There's no observable effect. But in this city, there's definitely effect, and it's very quick. In verse 6, it says, The crowds, plural, with one accord, were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. So now Philip is preaching, and as he's preaching Christ, and as he's continuing to, the crowds, the people, the city, is giving their complete and undivided attention to Philip's preaching. They are listening with one accord, it says in verse 6, or unanimously. The idea is that he's not having any trouble getting their attention. He has their attention, and that's a part of the story here that's going to become significant as we see this unfold in Samaria. But it wasn't only what they were hearing, it was also what they were seeing. Verse 6 ends with that point. It says, as they heard and saw the signs or the attesting miracles which he was performing. So just like the apostles and just like Stephen... Philip is empowered by God to do miraculous works that authenticate or validate that he is from God, that this gospel message is true. The power in Philip's preaching is matched with this supernatural power over sickness and demonic activity. You notice the connection in verse 7 where it says, "For." For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So what's taking place? Well, exorcisms. And beyond exorcisms, healings. Observable healings. Not my back hurts, so oh, it doesn't hurt anymore, but this is actually people who could not walk, who are now able to walk. Now, Luke gives a description here of these exorcisms, and by that I mean the removing of these demons from those who were indwelt by them. It says, for in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were being, the scripture uses the word demonized, they were indwelt by these wicked spirits. They're called unclean, I believe, for that reason. Uh, one comment I saw in a Bible said something about them being ceremonially unclean. I think it was more than that. These are actually wicked, sinful, evil spirits. The scripture calls them in other places foul spirits, demonic spirits. They are antagonistic to God and opposed to his will, and they destroy the person they inhabit. They either hinder them by causing them to be, have physical difficulties, such as being deaf or dumb, or in the case of some, which we see in the Gospels, what's that man doing out in the tombs? He's crying, he's cutting himself, he can't be controlled. The demons inside of him were completely destroying his life. And what Philip does as he comes in preaching the good news of Jesus Christ is he's accompanied by this power of God to remove these opponents of God, these enemies really of the people of Samaria, from their presence, even from their own bodies, by calling them to come out as Paul did in the name of Jesus Christ. And they were having to come out because of the authority of that name because God was working through Philip. But they didn't come out with, without some resistance. 
We see this in the Gospels. We also see it here. Notice it says, For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice. Why is that? Why are they making such a ruckus? And in the Gospels, you can see at times where someone is falling down on the ground and foaming at the mouth and suddenly, finally, at Jesus' word, this demon comes out. But there was a resistance. That's what Calvin called it. He said it was a token of resistance. He said that crying wherewith the unclean spirits cried was a token of resistance. Wherefore, this served not a little to set forth the power of Christ, that he did bind the devils with his commandment, though they resisted stubbornly. They didn't want to leave this abode that they had, where they were comfortable. But the devil and his demons are not powerful enough to defeat the Lord or his gospel. There's no power on earth that can resist Almighty God. This is not Philip alone. This is Philip empowered by God, certainly empowered by the Holy Spirit, and in the name of Jesus calling them out. And they cannot ultimately fail to comply when the name of Jesus is invoked by one of his servants. Jesus himself, remember, was casting out demons at his own word, but I think as you see in the book of Acts, it's the name of Jesus that is the basis for the healings. It's the name of Jesus that's the basis for any exorcism. Any demon that's coming out must surrender to the Lord and to the power of his name, and just one would make a difference. But that's not what's going on in Samaria. Notice what had been the circumstance there in Samaria, this city. It says, for in the case of many who had unclean spirits. This is what this city was like. It was filled with darkness. It was filled with demonic activity. It was filled, and of course, if it had been filled with idolatry, those two go hand in hand, and that's what's going on. And now the gospel is coming in and being preached, and these many demons are being cast out, many unclean spirits are being cast out, making a ruckus as they did. But there's more that God is doing. What else is he doing? End of the verse, many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. I don't know that I'd ever really taken the time to think about the fact that you've got two different terms there. Other times in the Gospels, it's also paralyzed and lame. And I think the difference is, as I've studied it, I'm sure I could learn more, but I think the difference is paralyzed are those who are disabled and unable to walk at all. There's a disabled, excuse me, a paralyzed man who's carried on a bed in Luke chapter 5 because he couldn't walk at all. But someone who is lame is not necessarily unable to walk at all. They can, but there's limitation due to imperfect function of their lower limbs, due to maybe an injury, maybe they were born that way. They can walk, but they can't walk perfectly. And what does Luke say here? It says, many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So imagine the scene in Samaria, in addition to all of these people who are no longer dominated by the demons, all these people who couldn't walk, probably had crutches or something to help them, or maybe people who regularly helped them walk where they needed to go. They're just not needed anymore. I mean, imagine the resale shop. It's full of crutches and walkers, all that stuff. Why? It's just not needed. God has done a work, and it's not just a work where someone is, you know, sort of moving like this and they can walk now. But no, it's like the guy in the temple back earlier in Acts who's leaping and jumping and running all around. When God heals, he heals fully. And that's what he's doing. And it's not, again, just one, just one person would be amazing, but it's not just one. It's many who had been paralyzed were healed. So what do you think the emotional state is? of Samaria is going to be when all of this is happening. And by the way, we haven't, we've gotten kind of a general description to this point. We're going to see later on the conversions also that are taking place, which would add to what it says in verse 8. So there was much rejoicing in that city. 
I think if we're reading the scriptures carefully, we would say that when God was working through Philip as he's preaching Christ and then healing in the name of Christ, that just as Jesus did in the Gospels, and just as the apostles did before him, that the faith of the person who is being healed is also involved. And I hope if you remember, as we looked through that particular issue, that you remember that a person who's coming to faith, at the same time they're coming to faith in Christ, they're also being healed. Like that woman who had the flow of blood when she touched the hem of Jesus' garment, and Jesus immediately said, your faith has healed you, and he called her daughter. There's a relationship now between Jesus and that woman that had not existed before, but as she exercised faith, he acknowledged it and he also healed her. So while Luke here says it a little later, I do believe what's taking place earlier on here is describing, yes, gospel activity, miraculous, supernatural works, but there's faith. We'll see Luke describe that more directly uh, down in verse 12. But all of that is contributing to whether people had come to faith or just observing the effects. Verse 8, so there was much rejoicing in that city. The darkness is giving way to the light. The good news of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. Demons are being forcefully ejected and subjected to the power of God in Jesus' name. And people who could not walk at all or could not walk very well are now able to walk and run and even leap again. Wow, what an amazing thing. And this isn't the only time, by the way, in this chapter when God does a work and there's rejoicing even through Philip. And I just couldn't help but notice or point this out just because the same chapter... When the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch, look at the end of the chapter, comes to Christ, believes in Christ after Philip preaches the gospel to him. Look at verse 39. After he's baptized, it says, When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. Having the knowledge of salvation, there was rejoicing and joy in what God did for him individually. And the eunuch is just a one example of many, many people in this chapter who had come to a newfound faith in Jesus Christ. They may have heard of the Messiah, but now they're coming into contact with someone who is preaching the Messiah as Jesus, and they're believing in Jesus, the one who saves from sin. They're trusting in Him, and they're receiving eternal life. What a blessing, and what a production of joy throughout the whole city. The parade is not for some holiday. It's a group of people who are rejoicing in all that God has done in terms of healing and exorcisms, but also what he's done in their own hearts. What joy the gospel brings to our lives. What joy. And I would ask the question, has it brought joy to your life? Do you know the gospel message, and does it continue to provide you with joy? There are reasons that we can rejoice even today if the gospel has brought us life. If you came to know the Lord a long time ago and you have grown in your faith and you have learned more, there is more to be joyful all the road along. The more you learn, the more reasons there are for joy. You can think in terms of your election, that you're chosen of God, your redemption, that you're bought by God, your justification, that you've been declared righteous by God, your union with Christ, your preservation, that you're guarded and kept by God. All of those things, as you grow in your Christian life, you grow to understand those more and more. There's reason for rejoicing. But here, initially, before a person might know any of those things, there's now knowledge of a Savior who can save me from my sins. A Savior who has come to the earth to die on the cross in my place that I might have eternal life, that I might be cleansed and forgiven. There's a knowledge of mercy that God has not given me what I deserve. He could have that eternity in hell forever, away from his presence in everlasting torment. 
But no, God in his mercy through belief in the gospel has not given me that. He's given me grace. He's given me something instead of that that I don't deserve. And that comes out of his free favor, something that he just chose to do out of his goodness. He's forgiven my sins. This is something, as we preach the gospel message, motivates someone to know I have sinned against the Lord, but he is willing to forgive me of all of my sins. Many times people are looking backward, but when we understand fully the gospel, that's not only past sins, it's all my sins. Don't abuse that. But yes, God has saved you from all of your sins, your sins in the past, your sins in the present, your sins in the future. Justified means just as if I'd never sinned. God looks at me through grace. He looks at me in Christ. I stand righteous in Him by His declaration. And I have eternal life. I know now that I have eternal life because I know Christ. To know Him, John 17, is to know or to have eternal life. But for unending ages, I will be with God and His people and His angels in heaven. Unending ages. Unending ages. God does something for me that will really never end. And my experience of his goodness and his kindness will only continue. It doesn't come to the end. Many things in this life that are good that we enjoy, there's an end point. We enjoy that. We want to do it again sometime, but this is, this is really not ever going to come to an end. It is everlasting and eternal life. And that eternal life is filled up with fellowship with Christ. The same one who died for us. The same one who laid down his life. Spurgeon said, this is the golden center of the target. Fellowship with Christ is the fountain of joy. Other joys may help to fill it, but this fills of itself alone up to the very brim of fullness of joy. Now we have fellowship with Christ as we come to faith in Christ. And this is what's taking place, has taken place in Samaria. Yes, God did love these Samaritans. He sent his own son to a city of Samaria to preach the gospel to them. And now he sends one of his choice servants, Philip, to go down and preach the message there and look at the work that's done. Just those four verses, amazing. We could go on as we look at the chapter, and if we didn't read from verses 14 down through verse 24, we would think that the gospel has done something even more amazing. And it seems to have. The reason I put it that way is because if we read this whole section up through verse 24, we recognize there's something about this last convert that is drawn attention to that we, we, we need to consider carefully, and we're going to take another message to consider that, verses 14 through 24. But you could put it this way, that in, in addition to the demons being cast out, the gospel being preached, the healing of the paralyzed and the lame and the joy that's in this city. Now the city's greatest celebrity responds to the gospel. And I say the greatest celebrity because before Philip came and got all the attention, who had all the attention? It was Simon. Verse 9 says, Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. Now, Luke chose to tell us that after he tells us what happened, but that tells us the circumstance of this city when Philip came, that there was a long period of time where this sorcerer named Simon is ruling this city by his sorceries, by his magic. He's astonishing them. He has claims about himself, and they have praise for him. But let's think about his activity. First of all, notice it says, who formerly was practicing magic in the city. 
This is the idea of sorcery, which is, in one definition, to perform magical sm spells that harness occult forces or evil spirits to produce unnatural effects in the world. So I would say, as we look at what's taking place in verse 7, that there's really not a question as to why this was happening here. Sorcery, demonic activity going hand in hand. One word that is used in the New Testament is pharmakeia, which could be translated potion making. Definition is sorcery, especially exercised through the mixture of, mixture of substances to make potions, especially used of poison making. What is magic? There's a little book called Goddess Worship, Witchcraft, and Neo-Paganism written by an author who's also written books on the cults. His name is Gomez. And he says this, the definition of magic is the ability or the attempt to cause changes to occur in conformity with one's will, to bend, control, direct influence, manipulate, or turn reality for one's objectives, not merely by mundane means. This is allegedly accomplished by invoking or utilizing mysterious or invisible forces, spirits, or other extra-dimensional entities, or relatively unknown forces, laws, powers, rules, or rules to manipulate reality. M magic, as used here, means sorcery. It should not be confused with prestidigitation, like that word, or sleight of hand. So... What is the word that the scriptures use here? It says magic. Is there such a thing as magic? Is there such a thing as a force that involves demonic influence? Like a miracle? You know, the Bible acknowledges the reality of supernatural powers exercised in connection with demonic forces. It happens. A primary example would be the magicians in Egypt who were able to do some of the very same miracles that Moses did. Not all of them. In fact, when they couldn't do what he did, they said, remember what they said? This is the finger of God. They recognized that there was a power beyond the power that they had. What were they accessing? They were accessing dem demons. Babylon also had magicians. Daniel was actually appointed chief over all the magicians because of his interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Nebuchadnezzar not distinguishing between God's power and their power. He just kind of lumped them all together. But Daniel got lumped with a bunch of just magicians, wicked men who were accessing demonic spirits. Of course, he separated himself from them in terms of his activity, and he certainly didn't participate in what they were doing. And even when he, as he declared to Nebuchadnezzar his dream or the interpretation, he was careful to say that this doesn't belong to me, this belongs to God. God is the one who's giving me this. You could also see in Isaiah chapter 8, where Isaiah talks about mediums, those who communicate supposedly with the dead or probably spirits posing as the dead, spiritists, divination, the idea of telling the future. There's a spirit of divination mentioned in the book of Acts. Those things that Isaiah talked about had all to do with getting information apart from the prophet of God or the word of God. Is trying to access some power or some, some knowledge apart from God. And accessing the demons uh, for that purpose. I remember for a time in my life I had a job at night, Saturday nights before church on Sunday. And it was a newspaper job. It was 12 to 5 or so in the morning. And I remember listening to a radio show. And I remember the first time I started listening to it, I thought, what in the world is this? And it was a guy who would take calls from people. And the person that he was talking to, he would try to discern something about them and then talk to one of their former acquaintances who had died. And so he's... I really don't know if he was just a skilled manipulator of the people that called in or actually if he was involved in demonic activity. Uh, 
after listening to that a little bit, I realized I shouldn't be listening to this. This is demonic. It's evil. And God, when he gives his assessment of sorcery and magic, what does he say? Well, Galatians 5.20, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's evil. It's wicked. It's of the flesh. There's no reason that a Christian should participate in it or rejoice in it, celebrate it. I know what month we're in. I know what's coming at the end of the month. For many people, it's not Reformation Day. That's what I want to celebrate. What else does God say? Revelation 21.8, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in that lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's where sorcerers, that's where practice, those who practice magic will be found. In the end. And that's what Simon was doing, not just on a scale where it was just himself in his own home or with a few friends, but he's actually, he has a city mesmerized. They're astonished. It's like they're in a trance and they're giving their complete attention to him. Not only are they doing that, but Simon's gaining acclaim. Notice in verse 9, it says, claiming to be someone great, in verse 10, and they all from smallest to greatest were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. So not only is he gaining acclaim through his magic, amazing, astounding them, but he's furthering that acclaim by his own self-promotion because he's claiming to be someone great. It's kind of like you see those guys who come into a city with their you know, their wagon full of stuff and they're trying to wow people and sell things and he's not apparent that he's selling anything, but he is claiming to be the great somebody. And they came to the place, the city came to the place where they called him, verse 10, the great power of God. As if he is somehow, as someone put it, a channel of God's power. F.F. F. Bruce in his commentary on Acts says, The Samaritan Simon impressed his fellow countrymen greatly with the exercise of his magic powers so much that they accepted his own account of himself and regarded him as the grand vizier of the supreme God, the channel both of divine power and of divine revelation. He has their attention again. He's mesmerizing them. It says in verse 11, for a long time he was astonishing them with his magic arts. I mean, this is the ultimate Simon says. Right? Now, what's amazing is as the gospel comes in and is preached, Simon also believes so this person who's been practicing sorcery, who has all of this city under his control, you could say, now when Philip comes in, also exhibiting power, supernatural power, power that he can't explain, that he doesn't have any familiarity with, he hears the message, and according to verse 13, he believes. And so this is Simon's acceptance of the gospel. Look at verse 12. It says, but when they believed, that's the people of Samaria, believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. So they're believing, truly believing the gospel. And then they're responding with the first step of obedience, following the belief in the gospel, and that is being baptized. That's not salvation. That is the first step of obedience to give everybody else the knowledge that you have become a follower of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, it seems that at the same time they're being baptized, they're publicly confessing Jesus as Lord. 
but God certainly could work in their hearts prior to that, and they could come to Christ before that, but that was the moment when they were baptized where they're openly confessing Christ. I think that's why you see baptism and conversion so closely connected in the New Testament, but if a person isn't truly regenerated by the Spirit of God, baptism doesn't do anything except get a person wet and really present a false testimony if they're not saved. Luke draws attention to the fact that this is going on in, Philipp, uh, in Samaria. Men and women alike, again, drawing attention to this isn't just the men. This is women as well who are becoming disciples. And even Simon believes. And sometimes when I look at the scriptures and I see a statement like that. Even Simon himself believed, and my immediate thought is, well, he believed. That's what it says. If you're in adult Christian life hour, and we went through the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower, we understand that not every response to the gospel, even if it's called belief, is genuine saving faith. And I think we need to be careful as we read this passage in particular, to read the rest of the story with regard to Simon. And also just recognize that even when there are professions of belief and even the appearance of life, time will tell whether it's genuine saving faith. Here, verse 13 says, even Simon himself believed. So I... I think as you look at the story up to this point, if we didn't have verses 14 through 24, you would say, what an amazing thing God is doing at Samaria. And that's true. It is an amazing thing. But even to the point of reaching into the heart of this sorcerer who has been leading everyone astray, even the gospel penetrates there. Can the gospel penetrate there? Yes, it can. Can God save someone who has been involved in witchcraft or sorcery, being a medium, someone who has lived actually serving the devil, whether unwittingly or wittingly, but in a very direct way? Can God save someone like that? Yes, he can. And he has. Let's just keep on reading through the book of Acts and see some of the things that God does in Ephesus. So is that possible? Yes. Does God do that? Yes. Does that happen here? Well, I think you have to read the rest of the story. But I want you to notice as we look towards that, that when Simon believes and he is baptized, okay, who would have baptized him? Probably Philip, right? I mean, Philip's the one preaching. That would have been a lot of baptisms <laughs> based on what's happening there. But... Philip's probably the one baptizing him. And what is his confession of faith? Apparently, there was no reason in Philip's mind not to baptize him. This looked like genuine conversion. So I, I think as we look at this story, and we look at the rest of the story, you could potentially put blame on Philip. But at this point, in his gospel preaching and discernment of this life, there appears to have been a repentance of course, Simon doesn't have a following anymore, right? I mean, if everybody's giving attention to Philip now, and Simon's out of a job, but he's been baptized. In fact, not only has he been baptized, he's closely connected with Philip. Look at the end of the verse. It says, he continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, the word that's used, that's translated here, continued on, is an interesting word. It refers to close association or devotion. In Acts 1 and Acts 6, it describes the church's devotion to prayer. In Acts 2, it describes the church's devotion to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. But from a human standpoint, this word is used in connection with the personal attendance of a centurion. 
those who closely worked with or served the centurion would have had the knowledge of the daily dealings of the centurion insofar as they could get close and sort of shadow him or be a part of his life. That's that word. Some translations translate it a little differently. One translation has, he followed Philip everywhere. Another has it, he stayed close to Philip constantly. So Simon has made a profession. He has been baptized, and what do we find him doing? He's very closely attached to Philip. And what has Philip been doing? Philip's been doing amazing things by the power of God. It's like he's his shadow. Now, you might ask the question at this point, is Simon a believer? Well, even the fact that he's responded to the gospel and now he's very closely connected with the leader, the one who's preaching, you would say, well, that's a good thing. He wants to follow the one who led him to Christ. He wants to follow closely with this teacher, this preacher. This looks like, doesn't it, a great triumph for the gospel. This sorcerer has now become a servant of Christ, at least from the appearance. But not everything is as it seems. And I would suggest that what is taking place here, what we see later on in this chapter, is that what Philip has done is he has cast the net. Right? He cast the net of the gospel. And as that net was cast, and he's bringing in all these fish, so to speak, these fish are of different qualities. One person drew attention to that. He said, this Philip enters into Samaria and casts out the net of the gospel and catches, as Christ says, both good and bad fish. For not only did Samaritans believe and let themselves be baptized, and obviously you see where this person is going, but also Simon believed and allowed himself to be baptized. What kind of faith? What kind of faith does Simon have? I think that's a question as you read through the rest of the chapter that does get answered. There is such a thing as saving faith. There is such a, a thing as a demon's faith. A demon that believes and trembles, but does not submit itself to God. There is a faith, according to the parable of the sower, that is temporary. It only lasts for a little while. And then the life demonstrates really what kind of faith it is by its activities. So I think there's a warning here for us something that we need to consider ourselves. And remember, Philip, as he's leading, Philip is not fully discerning of where Simon is until it's revealed later on. Everything that Simon has done up to this point, he appears to be one of the crowd. And though he's a celebrity, though he's well-known among them, though he'd been practicing these other things, it appears that his life has had a change. Is he really interested in Christ? Is he really following Christ? Or is he on the same track with his deceitfulness and sorcery, but trying to find this greater power and how to use this greater power for his own purposes? I think that's what we'll see as we read and study this next section together. May the Lord help us as we examine ourselves and also as we see around us true and false faith. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you and praise you for the gospel message, the good news, and all of the attendant blessings. And Father, we pray even today that we would examine ourselves, that we would consider our own life before you. And if we have faith, we pray that it might indeed be genuine faith. We pray that you would help us to 
not be stirred up to constantly doubt or question, but to be stirred up so that we would make our calling and election sure, to make sure that we are indeed living a repentant, believing life. And we pray, Lord, that you would do your work in our hearts by your Spirit, even today. And if there's someone, Lord, who's even questioning whether or not they know you, if they're looking at their own life and considering that, Lord, I pray that for those who truly do know you, that you would grant them even more assurance as they seek you. But I pray if there's someone who does not, that you would also show them that they are not truly believing. Even if they have made a profession of faith, even if they've been baptized, even if they've been here for some time, or in another church, we pray that you would show them, Lord, the state of their own heart and the reality in their life, that they might not be lost to hell forever. And you said, Lord, that many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, and you will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And that's a frightful thing, but we thank you that we can know that we have eternal life. There are certainly signs of eternal life. We pray that we might see those in our life and strive for those in our life. We pray that you'd work in our hearts today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our hymnals and turn to 357. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. Let's stand together and sing. 357.